Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to I'm a Writer But. My guest today is Eden Robbins. Eden Robbins loves novels best, but they take forever, so she also writes short stories and self-absorbed essays. She co-hosts a science podcast called No Such Thing is Boring with an Actual Scientist and produces a monthly live lit show in Chicago called Tuesday Funk. Previously, she sold sex toys, wrote jokes for Big Pharma, and once did a stand-up comedy set to an audience who didn't boo. She lives in Chicago, has been to the bottom of the ocean, and will never go to space. Her debut novel is When Franny Stands Up. BuzzFeed called it a warm hug of a novel that empathetically covers topics like trauma, queerness, and gender equality. It was named a Best Book of 2022 by the Chicago Reader, a Best Queer Book of 2022 by Otto Straddle, and Best Book of the Month by Bustle and BuzzFeed. Welcome, Eden! Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I um I picked your book up. I always like to read the books as close to the episodes as possible so they're fresh. Yeah, so that's I picked fair. it up. I think it was last weekend and I was I flew through it and I never do that cuz oh. I, have, I have kids so I can't. <laughs> but um right. I'd be like, "Yeah, why don't you guys play with your toys?" and I would be reading in the background. <laughs> oh my god, that's like the ultimate compliment. Thank you. <laughs> it was such a fun book even, you know, as it's dealing with all those things that BuzzFeed outlined. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm so excited that you're here and so happy to talk to you about oh it. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be here. Will you give us a little taste? Uh, I would be delighted. Um, I'm just going to read from the beginning of the book, so no real intro necessary. <clears throat> if a doorman wouldn't open the door, was he still a doorman? It was like one of Papa's groaners. When is a door not a door? When it's a jar. But Franny had vanquished bigger foes than a measly hotel doorman. She had big plans for this particular Christmas Eve, and she had already twisted the truth in many terrible ways to get here. Lied to her parents about spending all evening downtown with her best friend, Mary Kate Finnegan, and then lied to Mary Kate, saying she had to rush home early for, and Franny was not proud of this, a Jewish thing. Aren't Jewish things at sunset? Mary-Kate had held her palm out like it was raining. It's been dark for hours. Don't be rude, Mary-Kate's handsome brother Peter had said. Not everyone's religion makes sense. Two lies didn't make you a liar, not if the cause was righteous enough. At least that's what Franny told herself, out of breath and at the mercy of the reluctant doorman. And this cause was righteous. Tonight and tonight only, comedian Boopsy Baxter was in Chicago to perform at the Empire Room. 
Franny had been following Boopsy's headlines for months, arrested on obscenity charges, arrested for doing comedy in a segregated nightclub, arrested for being obscene, handcuffed in her elegant floor-length mink or her spangled gown, smiling slyly directly into the camera. Franny wanted what Boopsy had, a grin in the face of danger, more devil-may-care, less knots in the gut, a belief in winning even when it looked a heck of a lot like losing. Franny needed to see Boopsy Baxter because Boopsy Baxter had a showstopper, a legendary, famous, secret showstopper that was too spectacular to talk about in the papers. Franny just had to know if showstoppers were real or phony because if they were real, then magic was real. And if magic was real, she might just be able to bear this endless dreary war. Dreariness was fine and dandy if it kept her brother Leon safe, but it didn't. Franny got all the safety and he got bubkiss. The doorman relented. Franny ducked inside, melting gratefully into the entryway, wiggling her toes and trying not to think about sore thumbs. Everything in the Palmer house was gilded, marbled, bejeweled, or furred. Well, the people were furred anyway. Franny took the marble stairs two at a time up to the landing, nearly skidding into a sculpture of Romeo and Juliet, forever batting eyelashes at each other. Poor suckers had no idea how their story would end. The stairs split at the landing, each side curving up to the bustling lobby bar. Franny reluctantly removed her ratty coat, the dress underneath was only barely less ratty, and touched the magazine article tucked in her pocket for luck. Boopsy Baxter had been interviewed in Ladies Variety, a salacious rag out of Miami that Franny had gone through a lot of trouble to get her hands on. The most information about showstoppers that she had ever found was in this interview. Showstoppers are real as your magazine, Boopsy said, but they don't work on men, so men don't believe in them. They call them hallucinations if they call them anything at all. You ask me, that's for the best. But what is a showstopper really, Ladies Variety had asked. If you come to one of our shows and you laugh, you feel something only we can give. Comedian Ida Horn makes her room feel love at first sight. NYC's Lucy Goosey has her room flipping tables and screaming battle cries like Joan of Arc. So the showstopper is unique to each comedian. Exactly right, Boopsy said. But where do showstoppers come from? Why us, why now? Let me put it this way. A man pinches your rear and you really want to let him have it, but you pretend to be flattered. Been there, honey? Boopsy asked. I'm sure our readers can relate. You swallow those feelings and they sink down deep, stick to your ribs, Boopsy said. They shake you up like a beer bottle and that pressure can suffocate you. Comedians are like bottle openers. We relieve the pressure by making you laugh. Pressure can be painful, but it also has power and potential. And the world doesn't want us girls to have either. Thank you so much for reading that little bit. Um, I'm glad that it included the showstopper because even though I had been prepared for the concept <laughs> of a showstopper, I still wasn't actually prepared for how um, how Franny experiences it. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Um, because not to spoil it for everyone, but she has an orgasm, her first. Yep. Um, yep. First chapter. Of, You're welcome. <laughs> yes, exactly. In the middle of Boopsie's set, and. So and, and I felt like because of the way she experiences it and because it's this mysterious thing that only exists in the world of this novel, I think, mm -hmm. um, I felt like I experienced it in the same sort of like delirious way that she did. Oh. And it had me sort of like, not that I orgasmed. I would have loved it if I did. But... <laughs> That'd be amazing. That's real magic. <laughs> the I mean, magic of literature. Right now. Um <laughs> No, but I, I felt like um, I felt like it cast a spell over me 
um, in a, in a really fun way. Um, and I just, I wanted to know from you where the concept of a showstopper came to you and, you know, was it, I want to write a novel about female comedians in the fifties, or was it, what if there was this thing that happened to you at a, at a comedy show, which I, I do feel that there is transcendence that can happen in those kinds of performances. But anyway, yeah. I want to hear from you where this all came from. Yeah, totally. I mean, it started, you know, this, the book, when I started thinking about it, it was very different, but the core of it was this idea of like, what if comedy could literally heal somebody or literally have a kind of magic to it? Because I feel the same way, like laughing and laughing in a comedy show in particular at, or at stand up, like where it's a person you don't know who's making you laugh, whose job it is to do that. It feels magical. Like there's just something about it that is transformative. Um, so the showstopper itself, uh, which is a kind of magic that an audience experiences when they laugh and each comedian's is different, um, that just kind of came out of the idea of, of this transcendence of comedy. Um, but it also came from when I was writing this, I just wanted to pull from, this is going to sound weird for a second, my own experiences. Mm -hmm. um, not that I had an orgasm at a comedy show, but I spent many years working in sex toy stores. And so I have this like very unique relationship to sex and sexuality. And I wanted to kind of, I don't often see this very casual approach to sexuality in books. And I just wanted to bring it there. Like, what if, what if this orgasm was magic? <laughs> um, yes. So that that's kind of like all of those things sort of piled into the showstopper or to Boopsie's showstopper in particular. Yeah, hers is probably the most intense mm -hmm. right, of the comedian, yeah. which is why she's so so famous. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but I love that Franny's reaction to it was fear. Yeah. And that she never wanted to experience it again. I mean, her immediate reaction is, oh, my God, this feels amazing. Mm -hmm. But then as soon as it's over, mm -hmm. she's terrified and she runs away from it and she spends a lot of time like trying to get away from it. Yes. Um, and I felt like that was like such a brilliant way to wrap up her own, you know, her own concept of her sexuality at that time period, you mm -hmm. know, in, in our world. Um, and I don't know, I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about like what you think, you know, like sexuality had to do with, with the showstopper and, you know, like all of that, all of how it all ties, t ties in together. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I'm always drawn to when I'm writing stuff is this idea of hiddenness, like secrecy. Mm. Um, and the fact is that like, you know, there have always been queer people and there have always been, you know, women interested in sex and there's always been all this stuff, but like, we don't often, the, the dominant sort of writing and media that we get doesn't really express that. And so I was like, well, what would that have actually looked like for somebody who is living in this repressive time, but still a human being who's like having these feelings and exploring stuff. Um, and so the, even just the idea of these women who took over stand-up comedy, I was like, what if there was a time period between the end of the war and the late fifties when like, um, this actual sort of casual stand-up took place. Um, what if there was this sort of hidden forgotten period of time of these women who had this, this freedom um, to talk about what they wanted to talk about, to live their lives the way they wanted to live. It's still in secret, but they, but they had created a world for themselves. Um, and so for me, yeah, like the showstopper and sexuality and exploration and freedom 
um, it's within this bubble of these female comedians, but it is facilitated by comedy and and by this time period. Um, so yeah, it's all it's all really wrapped up together. And Franny, I feel like, you know, she's sort of obsessed with having control. She she feels like if she can at the beginning of the book, if she can experience the showstopper, maybe she can control the fate of her brother and keep him safe. You know, it's it's kind of twisted, but I feel like we all kind of have these. Oh, ideas of what we can control and what we can't. And because the showstopper makes her lose control, it is the exact opposite of what she wanted. And it really freaks her out. So she gets pretty lucky to fall into this world of comedy and freedom. Um, because I think otherwise she would have lived with this fear forever. Mm-hmm. You know, I was going to ask you why this time period, you know, mm-hmm. why Chicago, um, you know, and I think it is wrapped up in what you're saying, where like things were taboo back then. And it would make sense that Franny was oppressed in this way, and she would oppress herself in this way. But then I'm also thinking, holy shit, there's still stuff that if you talk about as a woman, you're considered like, oh, okay. And and you yeah. know, one of those things is like, if we talk about periods, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to interview Chloe Caldwell in the next few weeks, and she nice. wrote a whole book about periods. And, yes. And it's still subversive to to see that in you know tv shows or in print or in whatever it's like you there's still things about being a woman and and having a body that mm-hmm. are considered you know um transgressive if you address them in any way um yeah absolutely and i think also to address them with like there's something very threatening about humor mm-hmm. um and I, I i always remember there's this one moment like when i was younger and you know when in in like hetero relationships when men are asked like what do you look for in a in a partner and and often they'll say a sense of humor and i was like that's so interesting because i don't see that in action um no, no. but and, you know, and every like anytime a man has said with the exception of my husband but anytime a man has mm-hmm. told me like you're funny it's been like whoa you're funny <laughs> yeah well when i found out what they actually mean by a sense of humor is laughing at their jokes oh i saw that clarified and i was like whoa what um and i don't think and again i don't think this is true of everybody but i think like as a as a pattern that that's often the case so if you are a funny woman um that is super transgressive and like doubly transgressive if you're talking about your sexuality you're talking about your body you're talking about you know icky periods or whatever mm-hmm. um this is why so i i took a, a stand-up comedy class in chicago um with alex cuman who's a really wonderful hilarious stand-up comedian um who we just lost to new york a couple of years ago no but she has this terrific set about uh going to the gynecologist and it's like so wonderful because it pokes fun at all of these details that we all experience and it just kind of like sucks the the fear and like the poison out of the experience um, of of what can be like sort of a scary traumatic experience to go to the gynecologist. Um, And I really think like that is the power of comedy and that's the power of talking about this transgressive stuff that that does sort of make people uncomfortable. Absolutely. I'm thinking about that, this thing I saw on Instagram that this woman was pretending like she was her gynecologist coming in and mm-hmm. she was like, Hey, how's it going today? And all of a sudden she drops her clipboard on the ground, runs over to her patient's purse and starts digging through before she finds the woman's underwear and goes, here they are disgusting. You're disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> because we all hide yep. our underwear. Like we roll our underwear up, hide yep. it in something because we're just terrified that anyone would, absolutely, you know, and I, I had to go, 
have oh a full God. body skin check recently. And I mm-hmm. guess I didn't understand that I had to be completely nude for that. And so as I'm undressing for that, I was thinking of that video and I was like, oh my God, I feel so much better just knowing that's in the world. And it's exactly yes. like you're saying, you know? Yep. Yep. Because you're not the only one who's having this weird experience. And I think, I think that's like, that's true for women, but that's true for comedy in general. Like that's, I was thinking about this this morning. Um, comedy does a lot of things, but one of the things it does particularly well is like, if you think about the fact that most of suffering is how we interpret an experience, like the story we tell ourselves about an experience, mm-hmm. comedy is really good about rewriting that story. And, and like, taking the sting out of suffering Mm -hmm. and and that i think is like so unbelievably potent and and that's really what a lot of what draws me to comedy i think comedians are like some of the best artists that we have and like i'm so in awe of what they're able to do because if it's exactly like you're saying because if you look at the root of that video i was just talking about it is Mm -hmm. i am disgusting and someone will find out yes and that is universal amongst women i would say Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyone who identifies as a woman, you know, like I, I feel yeah. like that is a universal feeling that we all have. And so to have it brought to light like that, where you feel less alone. Yes. It's, it's, I'm less disgusting now. Exactly. That's exactly right. Well, I want to talk a little bit about writing the jokes for this book, because I feel like that had had to be really hard because you mm-hmm. had to, you had to write the joke from where Franny was at her comedy journey. Yep. Because she had to be like, a rube, right? Like she had to be like a very new, like mm-hmm. new to comedy. She didn't understand the construction of a joke and you had to write those for her. What, what yes. was that like? Yeah. Um, really weirdly hard. Um, <clears throat> so there was a couple of things that went into this. One is I really hate um, media about somebody learning something and then immediately becoming an expert, especially if it's creative work. And so I was like, I really want to sort of show the process of becoming good at something creative and how hard that is, Mm -hmm. but also it can't be boring. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, and also like nothing brings a story to a screeching halt, like a bunch of jokes. Um, (laughs) So it was like trying, I I think the, the way that I finally found my way into it was thinking about like, Franny's creative process and it was really helpful to have these other comedians with her like the group of people mm-hmm. um teaching her how to do comedy and and sort of the rapport that they had so like thinking about this as like the process of like comedians trying to impress each other and like w- you know it's not just about telling a story it's about having a point of view um and and sort of like picking a few jokes to evolve over time rather than like showing Franny's whole set. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, and interspersing those jokes and like, yeah, they can't be funny at first. And even if they are funny joke, the funniest joke on paper is not as funny as it is when somebody is telling it. Absolutely. Yes. yes. I was thinking that the whole time, you know, you have to, and you do a great job of this, of putting us in the moment and, right. and hearing her voice as best we can. Yes. So it had to be for me, it had to be about the experience and more about the experience and less about the jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the jokes had to reveal something about her character and about her life and about the things she didn't want to talk about. Um, so, uh, you know, that's kind of I, I almost like worked my way around the joke rather than focusing too much on the joke itself. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it, it that to me seems like there's a lot of hard things in this book. 
you know, mm-hmm. she's sexually assaulted and she's dealing with that and trying to suppress that memory. Her brother suffered major trauma in the war and he's back and he's filled with rage and she's filled with rage about it. And there's a lot of hard things that you yeah. explore in this book. But for me, writing a joke is is so terrifying. <laughs> you know? Yes, it is. It is right. Because like, I think it's different. Like you and I are rapping right now and like we're making each other laugh. Like that's mm-hmm. easy. But writing it down and yes. then evaluating it for whether or not it's funny and how it would land, especially thinking about the time period, mm-hmm. that had to be so freaking hard. It was. Um, and actually, you know, like I said, I had taken this comedy class and it was, you know, I wrote a five minute set for it and it was the hardest writing I have ever had oh to do. God. Because you're sitting there and you're like, hmm, this word doesn't have quite the right rhythm. Yes. Like, is this word as funny as that word? And you're like, based on what? Like, what <laughs> what makes this word funny? Uh, but it's true. It's so hard. And like, yeah, the time period, um, you know, like, it's like I wanted to embody the time period without replicating it. Um you know, I couldn't ignore the 1950s, like all of the racism and sexism and homophobia mm-hmm. and everything. Couldn't just pretend that didn't exist, mm-hmm. but also like didn't want to wallow in it um, and like trying to be mindful of like a modern audience. So, yes, it was quite difficult. <laughs> Thank you for I, noticing. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and and it's it's all wrapped up in her self-denial as well. Yeah. Um, she wants to be funny without she wants to be funny just on the surface, you know, like yep. she, she does not want to mine her life for the pain that she can then turn into humor, which is no. why we all laugh. We all laugh as we just talked about, because it is painful and we all know it's painful and it's a relief to see that other people have this pain. Yeah. And, and I think she, I mean, that goes back to like, she wanted, she was trying to use comedy to exercise control over her life and to mm-hmm. escape it. Mm-hmm. But the only way out is through you know, and it just, it takes her a very long time to realize that and be willing to have the courage to do it. Yeah. And I think it's so realistic in terms of like this thing that your very most inner self wants, desperately wants and knows would be good at. I think a lot of people might have that knowledge, but the terror of it and the understanding of the work that's going to go into it, the work that is going to be painful allows them to drop it. Yeah. She keeps coming back. Yes, expressly told many times, do not come back here. (laughs) Either because you're not funny, you're a lot of trouble, whatever, various reasons don't come back here. And she keeps coming back. Right, right. It's like she can get herself through the door. And she she's like, eventually, you know, the inner self is guiding her, you know, even when the outer self is resisting. Um, And I think like, yeah, she just she knows what she needs, but she just can't bring herself to do it. But you but I mean, think about it, like, you know, when you're, it's not so, hearing you talk about this, I'm like, yeah, this is actually kind of the experience of novel writing too. Yes, and exactly. Publishing. Yes. Yeah, because you're like, oh my God, I just so desperately want to be seen and I'm going to just like express myself. And then like the second it gets close to publication, you're like, shit, yes. no, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look at me. Don't look at me. You're like, that was two years ago. That was a totally different person. Totally different person. I'm Ask not that person anymore. Novel I'm writing now. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's so agonizing. Like I didn't, you know, I, I guess I, th- I thought I was prepared for publishing a novel, but it is a lot like that. Like, it's like, oh, my God, I'm not ready for this at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it becomes not yours anymore. Yep. Just like, you know, 
I would say your showstopper doesn't become mm-hmm. yours anymore. And it's that's right. And it requires an audience to work. That's right. It's a relationship. Yep, exactly. No, it is. It is such a weird thing how your dream can come true and it can feel so terrible. Yes. <laughs> you know, like on the surface, it's like, oh, my God, I did this thing that I set out to do and it was hard and I did it and people like it. And, you know, like, what more can I want at the same time that you're like jabbing a pen into your thigh, you know? Yeah. You're like, don't look at me. Yes. Oh, God, I didn't mean it. Can I take yeah. it back? I'll do better next time. <laughs> oh, I know. Exactly. I totally know what you mean. One of the yeah. most surprising things um, for me in the book was how you treated Peter. Mm-hmm. Um, he's one of the most maddening characters to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because, so anyone who doesn't want to be spoiled, you just fast forward because we're going to talk about a spoiler <laughs> in the book, okay? We have to talk about it. So yes. Peter rapes her. Um, and... Mm-hmm. But he has told himself a story that he genuinely believes, it seems, yep. that it was her coming on to him and he had, you know, he would just kind of went along with it. Yep. And we know, because we know Franny, that she would never do that and that right. she wasn't even really attracted to him mm-hmm. um, and, you know, laid there like a dead fish as it was happening, basically. Right. But she has this moment. So this is quite a bit of pain for her because yeah. she's horrified by it. She's shamed by it. She's angry about it. Peter has told her brother that she seduced him. And so now her brother believes this horrible story. Um, and so it's, it's, it's too painful for her to look at. But eventually she has this confrontation with him where she has a realization about him that frees her. Mm-hmm. And I found that quite, I don't want to say the word brave. I don't think that's the wrong word, but I felt like it was, it was a wild choice for you. Um, like a a beautiful choice to give her that power, to give her that moment where she could sort of be like, Oh, you actually believe this story. And that that's, there's just something fundamentally wrong with you that has nothing to do with me. And it gives her a sense of freedom from that story. Can you talk a little bit about that choice? Yeah. Um, that's such a lovely way to put it. I could not have said it that well. Um, I, I feel like I, Cognitive dissonance is really powerful, right? And like I have experienced other people's attempts to resolve their cognitive dissonance um, in in really upsetting ways. And and this is like you know this isn't an experience I had, but the the way that he just went all in on this story about himself is like very much things I've witnessed in other people mm-hmm. that like. I'm not a bad person, mm-hmm. so I couldn't have done a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I this is what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it is shocking when that when you experience that from somebody because you're like, I literally can't argue with this because it's it's not true. Mm-hmm. And and I this was such a, a tip. I have difficulty resolving things neatly. I don't like to do it. Um, And so I didn't want, I wanted Franny to have a victory, but not where you're like, yeah, you, you really stuck it to him. Right. Um, Because I didn't feel like handcuffs or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because I just didn't feel like that was realistic. Mm -hmm. And also Peter himself is a, is a bad dude, but he also is like, if it wasn't for him, Leon would have shot himself exactly you know and like that's the choice i'm talking about that you give this character right and and 
And I just think that like, I just wanted people to be a little uncomfortable with the fact that like, I don't think people are easy to categorize. And, but I wanted Franny to be able to move past it. And I think that like realizing this isn't about me. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to, if I'm going to heal from this experience, it, it can't have anything to do with Peter. And actually it shouldn't mm-hmm. because like he is taking up too much space in my brain. Mm-hmm. And, and so like to realize like, oh, actually you're just fucked up. And, mm-hmm. and, and I can't, I have to find a different way to, to heal myself. Yeah. Because um, he does multiple decent things throughout the book. And, yeah. but then he says these terrible lies and he is, you know, yeah. he just won't accept the reality of the situation. And so, you know, like he's so maddening and, and hateful in ways, but you, yeah. you give us this like actual real person, you know, and, and, and Franny's real like um, emotions and, and thinking about that is, is so, is so moving. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, it was really important to me. Like, I didn't, it's also a fine line to toe because I didn't want to be like, well, you know, Peter has a perspective too. Like, that's not no, where I, I was know. going no. with that, no, no, you know. No, no. And, it doesn't come right. Out like no, that. no. And I know that's not, I know that's not what you're saying. But I think that like that, that could have been a, a, a way to do it, I guess. Um, but it's like, it's not that he has a point of view. It's that like, these are two human beings entangled with each other and that gets messy. And like, how, how do you really resolve something like this in reality? Like, mm-hmm. how do you move past this, assuming you don't get the like, the vindication of of him being led away in handcuffs or apologizing or blubbering or any of that stuff? Mm-hmm. And even because even if you get that, that's not a resolution. Nope. No, because it still happened. The pain is still there. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's realistic because he's part of her life. I mean, the, he's her best friend's brother. He's right. been in her family. You know, he's her brother's best friend. You know, it's, it's, it's very complicated and simplifying it in any way, whether it's he's completely bad and he's, you know, he's apologized or it, it, it doesn't give us the whole story, which is what you were right. trying to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was really it was important to me. Um, you know, it could have been very easy just to 100 percent villainize him. But I'm like, ah, it just doesn't feel right. And it wouldn't feel right to Franny either, because she has she has all of it. She has memories. She has relationships, you know, like it. It's so complicated. And I think that's why trauma is so hard. Because... Yeah, because you're entangled with all these people. Exactly. Like the, the the chance of the trauma you've experienced having like having to do with a person that you just never see again is so that just doesn't happen. Right. Um, it, and or I mean, I guess it happens. But like very often the people who uh, inflict trauma on you are around. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Um, so you have to manage it somehow. Yeah, so I I don't know. I was I was stunned when I read that that confrontation oh, wow. and realization. I just loved it so much. Thank you. What was it like when you decided I'm going to write this and it's going to be set in the in the 50s? Were you mm-hmm. like shit? <laughs> <laughs> what did you do at that point? Like, how did you do the research required to to make this feel real? You know, what's really funny is I chose to write this book the way I did because I had written two other books that involved so much research that I, I was like, I need an easier book. Oh, God. <laughs> I know. So but the fact is, like, my so my family grew up in my family is from Chicago. Um, my dad grew up in Oak Park uh, in a Jewish family. 
And I made him drive me around uh, Oak Park, which is a um, sort of a suburb of Chicago. I made him drive me around and like show me all his old haunts and tell me stories from his childhood. And so there's a lot of, I really leaned heavily on like family stories. There's a lot of them in here or like family adjacent stories. Um, And I, you know, I, I did this like, um, Chicago nightclub history tour, uh, at one point, um, just to learn like what it was like and like where everything was happening. Um, I, I based the blue moon on the green mill, which is, which is, yeah. uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It's one of my, one of my favorite, uh, places in the city. Um, and so like, I tried to use things that I knew pretty well, and then also rely on, on stuff from my family. Um, and then the rest of it, yeah, I just kind of like tried to fill in the details as they seemed relevant and then hope for the best. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Was there an actual club? Um, what's the club that she goes to? That's like the really slimy club. Oh, uh, the velvet swing. Yes. Okay. So funny story. Uh, my uncle Seymour, um, who is the proprietor of the Velvet Swing in the book, is oh was the was the manager of the Velvet Swing in real life. Stop. Uh, yeah, um, and he this is a this is a pretty great story. He um, he ended up having to flee Chicago from the mob <gasps> um, because, <laughs> because he just decided like at that time you had to buy everything from the mob like the yeah. the liquor the tablecloths the napkins all this stuff and he just was like i'm gonna draw the line at ice and i am not gonna buy ice from the mob and so uh there was a knock at the back door of the velvet swing and a guy was like you know you either buy ice from us or you're gonna be you know wearing cement shoes in lake oh michigan God. and so he escaped to miami <laughs> <gasps> what yes did he stay there or did he ever come back he stayed there for a while and here like things get a little fuzzy here because my dad will tell me some of these stories and um you know they grew up near um uh tony accardo who was like the head of the chicago outfit after al capone so like my dad went to high school with his daughter oh my gosh um and so i guess he heard about it and he's like uh you know your brother got in a little bit of trouble eh? well you know what you can go back to chicago that's fine so he like said it was okay at some point oh oh my gosh i know isn't that nuts amazing i mean it could have it could have turned out so much worse oh yeah oh totally well that's the thing it's like there's there are interim stories about there are details missing about this story that I'm not sure I will ever get. Right. But but he's I mean, like I, you know, I, I knew I knew Sai when I was growing up. So like he clearly made it back uh, in one piece. Wow. So I may never know the I may never know the details, but he did eventually come back. That's incredible. <laughs> was Lottie based on anyone? Uh, no, no, I she just she just popped into my head. Um, I wanted yeah, I wanted her to run effectively run this nightclub that was, uh, you know, owned by her mobster husband. And she just, she just appeared. She's another character who is very hard to pin down, which I really enjoyed mm. um, because you think like, Oh, okay. I get it. She's like this hard shelled softy, but then it's yeah. like, Oh wait, no, she's hard shelled and she's hard on the inside. And then sometimes there's a little softness, right? <laughs> you know, uh-huh. like she's in it for Lottie's in it for Lottie. Um, and every once in a while, she's got a little bit of kindness to spread around. And I really enjoyed that because I, I, I could never 
I could never just like put her away as like, okay, she's going to be fine. She'll, she'll help Franny in the long run, whatever, you know? Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've had several readers come up to me with this like panicked look in their eye being like, what am I supposed to think about Lottie? <laughs> like I thought she was a villain and now I don't know. Like, so what am I supposed to think? And I was like, that sounds great. Yes, exactly. She's all of it. Okay. Yeah. Many things are true at once. Yes. Yes. It, it was very enjoyable. <laughs> And then at the yeah, end, I like Boopsie, her. like Boopsie, who's another character I want to talk about, Boopsie mm -hmm. um, says, like, says something that Lottie helped her by the nightclub, right? Or something like that, where you're like, Lottie is nice. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were, you know, they were buds and they kind of like, they were both there the day that you know boopsy was responsible for the very first showstopper and neither of them knew what was going on mm -hmm. um and they were like oh my god this is amazing and also like so weird and so they they had to like figure out what was happening what to do about it and lottie basically like created this short-lived empire of comedy that was sort of built around boopsy um <clears throat> and and so like they were you know in business together but ultimately you know, when things get hard, Lottie's going to throw anybody under the bus yep. to save herself. Um, and, but I think she feels bad because they do have this history together. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a, it's, it's a fraught relationship the two of them have. And I think like Boopsy is, is so torn because she loves Lottie too, but she's like, look, I'm not gonna, you know, <laughs> I'm not gonna cling to your coattails if you're just gonna like kick me off. Yeah. And it makes sense because like, Lottie's a drunk kind of, you know, like mm -hmm. it makes sense. Like there'd be all these complications, you know, yeah. she's the wife of a mobster. She's, you know, like in love with women and like, she's, there's all these things that complicate her. Yes. She's just trying to survive. And she's also the reason why comedy is, you know, is what it was, what it was in its heyday. That's right. And I think she sees the end of it too, like the end of this heyday. And she's like, who am I without, the blue moon who am i without this comedy like all i the other thing that i have when i walk out this door is my abusive mobster husband mm -hmm. like I, I have to it's not just for me but like i have to hold on to this somehow yep yeah. has your dad read this book he has did he love it he did and i i he loved it and but it's so funny like i don't know he was like oh my god i recognize all these stories Oh. You know, and so I, th I think I think he was partially like, "Ooh, I'm you know, my stories are in here. And I'm like, did you like the book? I don't know. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But my stories. <laughs> yeah. But he, I mean, he's very both my parents are, are very uh, supportive of it and, and read it and everything, which is like both wonderful and terrifying, um, you know, to have like this very. You know, it's fiction, obviously, but it's also like very personal. You know that, like it's any anything you, you write yeah. is right, yeah. And it's like, hello, mom and dad, and also everybody in my life. Like, here's my heart. Yeah, <laughs> Hope you exactly. like it. Yeah, like there's a there's a piece of me that maybe you had never glimpsed before. Is that going right. to be a little uncomfortable? Yes, it is. Right. Yes, it is. It has to be. How could it not be? I think my family stopped reading my stuff long ago. <laughs> you know, it, it was yeah, just like you know, too much for them. I, I, that would never, like my parents, I think are too, they would never stop reading, even if it made them uncomfortable, which is like both lovely and also like, I, I'm envious of you. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like, part of me is like, 
come on, man. Mm-hmm. And, and part of me is like, oh, thank God. I mean, because my right. dad, my dad has this very complicated pride because mm. on the surface, he's like, my daughter, the writer who's actually, you know, actually been published. You know? Right. <laughs> but also, like, he'll introduce me to people and he'll be like, this is my daughter, the writer. You should not read her books. <laughs> worst hype man ever i know and then people the people that are you know being introduced to me are like hello you know like (laughs) don't read why not what's going on in these books my dad's like nope 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 nobody needs to read these books that's so fun my my uh my husband says uh uh you know you don't need to read them but you have to buy them (laughs) and i'm like that's fair (laughs) that seems fair that i mean that's the kind of support we all want right right of course i don't need the criticism okay right yeah in fact please don't (laughs) i need the cold hard cash that's right (laughs) (laughs) um some of your dad's stories revolve around this man dr julian who's um the character in the book that he's based on is dr avery um yes and but dr julian was a real person and a mm-hmm. very accomplished doctor who yes. was um, a black man who was very, uh, uh, like, very much part of the, the the redlining and the racism and the way that people didn't want black people in, in their white neighborhoods. And he suffered yep. a lot of what we see Dr. Avery going through. Mm-hmm. But he was amazing. You said in your yeah. book that he's, he's, if we like birth control, we have him to thank? Pretty much. Yep. That's... Yep. He was a he was a chemist and he uh, was responsible for the artificial compounds that eventually like became hormonal birth control. Um, So, yeah, he's an incredible, incredible scientist and person. Um, I highly recommend actually this sounds really weird, but if you ever watch Drunk History, um, there is a drunk history of Percy Julian. Um, He's played by Jordan Peele. Amazing. It's terrific. And he was a a neighbor of your father's yeah so on the day that I, that my dad took me around oak park and showed me stuff at this point um i did not have that family in the book and he we were standing in front of um his old house and he pointed across the street and he's like oh that's where dr percy julian lived and i was like what <laughs> and he's like yeah and i was like you lived across the street from percy julian and he's like yeah and and I was like, how did I not know this? This is crazy. Uh, and so I was like, well, okay. You know, I had been trying to find a way to, a way into talking about racism in the fifties, because again, like it, it's, it's pretty fraught. Like I didn't want to overstep, you know, I wanted to stay in my lane, but at the same time I was like, I can't in good conscience talk about the 1950s in Chicago without addressing racism in some capacity. Right. Um, and so I was like, well, then this gives it like a personal bent. If this is the family that lived across the street, I know what they went through. Um, and I can fictionalize them, you know, and, and, and give them, uh, a role in this story, um, and, and interact with Franny in a way, you know, it's hard because like, again, I don't, I don't like the neat conclusions, but it's like, well, in the book, Franny does have to have an interaction with the Julians. Mm-hmm. And it does have to, you know, she does have to figure something out, out about herself. But like, you don't want to fall into the white savior self-actualization through black people uh, trope. And that's what's so wonderful is she does actually go to their door as a yeah. white savior, or she see, you know, she thinks to herself, if the neighborhood sees me going over there, then they'll stop being so racist. Yep. And she goes to the door. And Dr. Avery, Dr. Julian is kind of like, yeah, what do you want? 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Like she goes, she goes over there uh, and she's like, please come over to my house, you know, and we'll, you know, treat you well. And she hears like his daughter's giggling and like thinks they're laughing at her and all of this stuff. And they're and just that, living their lives. They're just living their lives. And Dr. Avery's like, yeah, you know, thanks, thanks but no thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that because I was also wary of, yeah. oh, okay, this is going to be the way that the Averys finally feel welcome is Franny's going to, you know, come into her own and, and everyone's going to see, but it doesn't happen that way. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny the the where she decides she's going to go over there. I was actually super nervous writing that because I'm like, please stick with me, everybody. I know you think you know what's going to happen, but like, Please don't close the book right now. You have to right. like watch the scene play out. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. It reminded me there's a part like that similar in um Ruman Alam's Leave the World Behind. Oh okay. where they they are trying to flee this horrible thing that's happening and they go to the general contractor's house who's a black man with a black family and and you know, they kinda try to white savior him and he's like, Get off of my property. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> He's like, I'm going exactly. to try to save my family. I don't need you white people. <laughs> right. I don't need you. Um, one thing, though, that's interesting about Oak Park in particular um, that is related to the Julians, though, like the actual family, is that it's, you know, segregation was so um, extreme in Chicago and Chicagoland area and like the violence perpetrated against black families and the redlining, like it, it was horrific. And Oak Park was one of the towns that actually thought through a process of like, how can we welcome black families into this community? And they recruited local people to like talk to their neighbors about, um, you know, black families moving in and what they could do to welcome them. They also for a long time uh, prohibited uh, for sale signs. Whoa, that's right that you say that in your book. Yeah, they would. Yeah. They didn't allow for sale signs because they thought that it would um, precipitate white flight. Yeah. And so if you're going to sell your house, you couldn't do it. Um, they worked with like real estate agents. They did all of this stuff. And I mean, it didn't it wasn't perfect. But uh, Oak Park ended up being more integrated than other communities because of the stuff that they very deliberately put into place. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. I um. We actually got married in Oak Park at the oh. uh, Frank Lloyd Wright Temple. You know, yes. So love beautiful. it yeah i love it's it a beautiful beautiful uh town it is um do you think uh you would go back up on stage and do some more comedy at any point um like so i thought about this uh a couple things one uh, as a novelist um i don't like getting <clears throat> immediate feedback uh i prefer yeah. to have it delayed for years <laughs> um and you do, you get immediate feedback and even even things that like worked once might not work a second time. Yeah. Uh, there are so many factors to it. So like, that's terrifying, but mostly uh, stand-up comedians and open mics are really late. Like they start at like 10 or 11 on a yeah. Tuesday yeah. and I am just like way too old for that. It does seem like a very hard life. Yeah, and that's the thing, it's like, when you write a novel, like you, you do appearances and you, and you go places, but like the book kind of does most of the work for you. Mm -hmm. When you're a stand-up comedian, you have to be there every time. Yeah. And it's better if people are a little uh, lubed up, right? So it's going to be a yeah. bar. It's going to be late. <laughs> but I, but I will say like the experience, the one time that I did it, it was pretty amazing. Um, because like I've written uh, essays, personal essays and things, but it's 
a very different kind of processing to turn something painful into a joke. And it's like you said, like to make other people feel seen and to relate to it and feel less alone. And then to hear them laugh like that relation. It's like there's different parts of comedy. There's the writing, there's the processing of your own stuff. And then there's the standing up on stage and conveying that to an audience who then responds to it. Like mm -hmm. it's really unlike anything I've ever experienced. And I can totally see why people get obsessed with doing it. Um, so it's like, good, I, it's really good. Oh my God, there's nothing like it. Like you really feel so a part of things, like a part of humanity. Um, and and so, but it's so much work and it's so late. So yeah, uh, and I, yeah. I, I get really intimidated by the notion of, like back when I used to do a lot of live readings, I would mm -hmm. write something new for every yeah. reading. And I get really intimidated by the notion of like, you're gonna just work on this same set for yeah. years, you know, like you're, yes. and then it's gonna be perfect. And then maybe you'll get, you know, like, and, and that really scares me. Um, yeah, well, and I think there's, you know, I don't know this because I've only done it once, but I, I know a couple of comedians and I, and I get the sense that like, you just kind of know when it's time to retire or something. Mm and and when you've worked on it and when it's it's almost like when it gets to be the place you want it to be is probably around the time you're done yeah. which is a really wonderful idea that like this thing is now i've now said everything i need to say about this and it is being conveyed in exactly the way that i need it to be and it's being responded to usually the way i need it to be and now i can let it go yeah that that I mean, I can actually relate to that a little bit with writing, you know, like, yeah. like you reach a point where you're like, I could tinker with this, but I don't need to anymore. <laughs> right. You know? It's like people, people ask you, like, how do you know when you're done? And it's like, I don't know. It's not that it's perfect. It's that I know I'm done. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh God, I love that feeling so much. I know, right? It is amazing. <laughs> There's just this like brief moment where you've done all you can do you feel high basically mm -hmm. and but then like for me like when I send it to my agent or something yeah then there's a like oh no <laughs> yeah oh it's it's fleeting yes <laughs> but there is this moment when you're like it's almost a moment of like self-acceptance because you're not like I've done you know this this is a work of art like right. it's perfect right you're just like you know what it's time to let it go. Yeah, it's time to let it go. And it feels really good. Like you feel kind of you have accepted yourself, you've accepted the work with all its flaws and everything. And it lasts for about 22 seconds. And then you <laughs> send an email to your agent and you're like, Oh, God, she's gonna hate it. Oh, it's like, no, it's it's mine. You can send it back. Never mind. Yeah, it's never mind. Mine. Never mind. No one else. <laughs> yep. If if you had a showstopper, what do you think it would feel like? Uh, yeah, you know what I um, have been asked this question and I've never come up with a good answer for it. So I'm going to, I'm going to evade the question by answering it okay. and saying that the thing about a showstopper is that it comes from deep inside you to uh, a part of yourself that's secret even to you. And so until it happens, um, you don't, you don't know what that thing is. That's a great answer. Thank you. That's a really great answer. And now I feel like my goal in life is to have a showstopper. So I have to I know. seek that and find I almost, out what it is. I almost feel like, you know how like, sometimes that like somebody you just met or you, you like know them in a way that feels 
weird because you just met them like you're like oh i i know what kind of person you are and like you can be wrong and there's details and whatever but like you kind of get a sense of a person based on how they convey themselves mm-hmm. in the world mm-hmm. um i almost feel like a showstopper is something that somebody else can figure out for you quicker than you can figure out for yourself whoa whoa <laughs> you know i i like live for those moments when someone i always think of it as um okay this is a long aside but um in that show new girl mm-hmm one of the roommates, they call him Pogo, because when he gets up in the morning, he has a boner and he doesn't <laughs> realize it and he pogos them and like, uh-huh. they'll be like bumping next into them in the kitchen and they're like, ah, Pogo. And he doesn't <laughs> realize this about himself. And so then he's like, you guys call me Pogo. I had I never knew. I had no idea this is who. And so then they're obsessed with finding out each other's Pogo. Like, what is it about me yeah. that you guys talk about that I don't realize? I live for that. I want yes. people to tell me those things. I, you know, and like no one ever believes me. That, that I want to know those things. I want people to tell me those things. But it's like, so maybe instead of Pogo, I should say Showstopper. Like, Yeah, what is I think so. Because I, I, I feel the same way. It's like, well, I want to know, but I also don't want, like, I don't want to know if it's like bad. <laughs> like if no, it's like, you're a terrible person. But like, there are things that people know about you just, just by the way, because you can't like, I don't know. I think we think we're real sneaky about the stuff that we hide, but like it shows up physically and it shows yes. up in tone and it shows up like you just can who people are. Yes. And, and I think I do think the showstopper is kind of like that. Um, and so yeah, I kind of want to do a thing where where we all like figure out each other's showstoppers, like what would they be? That is a great game. Everyone <laughs> read this book and then go play this game. Yay! Oh my god, that'd be so fun. And if anyone knows what my showstopper is after listening to over 100 of these podcasts, if anyone oh. out there is like that, let me know. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I hope you get some emails. I hope so too. And I want please tell me because I want to know. I will. I will absolutely tell you. Eden, thank you so much for coming on. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. I'm so glad when Franny stands up is just so fun to read, an absolute delight, and so like barbed and edgy and like juicy. Oh God, that what a wonderful thing to say. Thank you. <laughs> it's like everything I always wanted. Well, good job. You wrote the book that you wanted to write. Yay. Thank you so much. And everyone go read it and then tell us what our showstopper is. Yes, please. Please.